During the month of October, Science Moab is producing a new show each week featuring scientists that have been recipients of the Canyonlands Natural History Association Discovery Pool Grants for 2023. Canyonlands Natural History Association is a nonprofit organization which exists solely to assist the National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service, and the Bureau of Land Management in their education and visitor efforts. The Discovery Pool Research Grant Program was established by CNHA to encourage and provide funding for research partnerships between qualified scientists and CNHA's federal agency partners in southeastern Utah. Since its inception in 2007, CNHA's Discovery Pool has awarded $800,000 in grants. The research for today's episode was partially funded by the Discovery Pool. This is Science Moab a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about the iconic desert bighorn sheep and looking into ways that they are affected by human noise. It's a good show. Stay tuned. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Joel Berger. I'm a professor at Colorado State University. I work in the realm of wildlife biology. I grew up in L.A., and that would be Los Angeles, not Louisiana. And I did ride motorcycles in the deserts and enjoy recreating, and I still do, but I no longer ride motorcycles because I value my knees. Thanks, Joel. Can you just start by kind of painting a picture of the desert bighorn, where it lives, where its daily activities, things like that? Uh, So desert bighorns occur in southern Utah mostly. They're a pretty sensational, iconic animal. They are low density. They are in arid systems only. They need water, like most mammals need water, not all, but most. Bighorns are iconic for so many reasons, not only to people in Utah, but throughout the western U.S. Males have bighorns. Females have horns, but they're smaller horns. But the species is called bighorns because of the bighorns of the males. Males can run uh, 150 to 200 pounds in the desert. Females will be about about two-thirds that size, maybe a little less than two-thirds that size. They give birth usually in... May, late April, 90% of the births will occur from late April to early June. Because the food is so sparse in the deserts, they're not in huge groups of 20 or 30 or 40 as they are in the mountains. The typical group sizes are anything from about three to six, but sometimes you'll see groups of 10, occasionally groups of 15, but that's rare. Most of the time, small group sizes, they use cliffs, they will come out onto more level ground now and then, but their major escape is by the use of cliffs. You, you've been studying uh, the desert bighorn sheep uh, for a while now. I'm just curious why, what kind of triggered you to start asking the questions of how noise is affecting the livelihood of the desert bighorn? So I, um, my PhD work was on bighorn sheep, including in the deserts, but not in Utah. And I returned to the world of bighorns after about 30 years, and I had been working in the Moab area, San Rafael Swell, all the way down south to the San Juan River. And 
after a couple of years of focusing on recreation and impacts to pregnant bighorns, I was interacting with a number of folks in and around Moab especially, and the noise ordinances and the increasing levels of aerial activity, whether it be tourist helicopters, whether it be uh, sightseeing planes, there was starting to become an issue and it had been on and off over, I don't know, a couple of decades, but people said, Joel, since you're focusing on, on bighorns already and recreation, is there a way that you could get at the sensitive, possible sensitivity of bighorns to sound. So concerns by the local people, whether it be by ranchers, whether it be by recreationists, whether it be by the business community, or whether it be by the agencies. It was like, can you help us understand this issue? It made sense to me. And that's how I got re-involved on the sound part of our existing studies. So uh, it was brought to your attention that not a lot is known about the noise affecting the sheep, especially recreational noise in Southeast Utah. So how did you go about designing this study? So the major thing that we want to know is how bighorn females are responding. The reason I say bighorn females, and then Peggy, I'll come directly back to your question, but I need to set the context. Most of the recreation in Southeast Utah occurs during the spring and late spring. This is exactly when females are pregnant and not only pregnant, but in their last trimester of pregnancy. And so anybody who's listening, who's a mom, anybody who's had a sister or uh, any other kind of person who has given birth, we know that it can be really stressful in late pregnancy. And that's when animals need access to high, highly protein, um, proteinaceous grasses. And so we're trying to understand what noise does to pregnant females. And so that's the context. We're not doing all bighorns, we're just focused on females. And 90 some percent of the females are pregnant at this time. To do things in the most appropriate way, a scientist would say, well, you expose animals to sounds, then you have other sounds that are different. Do the animals distinguish between the kinds of sounds and how do they respond? All right, so that would be an experimental setting. Wild bighorns in Utah are not in experimental settings. We don't bring them into a captive facility and play sounds. So we need to be creative. And so we're exposing females in groups to three kinds of sounds. We do this plant from a speaker, usually a reasonably good speaker, and we play back the sounds at a constant sound level known as decibels, so fairly loud. And we do this when the sheep can't see us and so we're hidden. And so sometimes we're 200 yards from them, sometimes we're a thousand yards or 1500 yards, so three quarters of a mile. We do this with the sounds of motorcycles. We do this with the sounds of people talking, which would replicate like real sounds like, hey Mike, where's the trail? Hey, Mike, where's the trail? And so we'll do this in 20-second bursts. Same for motorcycles. 
So 20 second bursts, then we stop it for 10 and then we do it again. So the total amount of exposure time is 60 seconds to those sounds. And then we use a familiar sound, something that they're used to, like a raven. My dog may respond, but I'm gonna do this on air for you. Yeah, the dog's responding. But so we use sounds that the animals are familiar with, unfamiliar with, and then where they might distinguish and think one could be a threat. Right. So somebody might be thinking, well, wait a second. So you're doing people sounds. You're doing the sounds of motorcycles. Why aren't you doing some of the other kind of vehicles that we have out there in the field, including like helicopter noise or airplane noise? It's a great question. The reason we're not doing that is if you find a group and you play back one sort set of sounds and the animals respond and run away, all right, that will be a sample of one. And then we have to find another group and do it again. And we have to find another group and do it again. So we can't keep repeating it to the same group on any given day. And so when we started this question and answer, I wanted to indicate the realities because we're not doing these in an experimental setting. And so we can't just keep exposing the same group to the same sounds because maybe they get used to the sounds after yeah. the fifth type of sound, or maybe we just keep chasing them away, which is not ethical. So our samples are limited and we don't, every day we're in the field, we're not even finding bighorns because they're hard to find. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, your your primary question or concern is how it affects the pregnant or last term females. So it sounds like most of your work must be done in the spring, I'm guessing. And where has most of your work been taking place? Almost all of our work is in spring. I say almost all. Occasionally, I'll show up in early winter, sometimes late fall. But the bulk of our work is targeted around the timing of late pregnancy, in part because that's the reality of when Moab is receiving most visitation. This is our first spring that we finished this season. We'll have one more we anticipate. Okay. We have three study sites, which okay. makes things more interesting and more realistic from a biological perspective so that we can gain deeper insights into how sheep respond. Our major study area is in and around the Moab area, and that receives the most visitation. Our second area, though, is about 50 miles northwest of the town of Green River, which would put it about, let's see, 50, uh, almost 100 miles northwest of Moab. It's an area called the San Rafael Swell. And that also has bighorns. It also has recreation, but it has less recreation, right. which means we have a comparison and we can ask then, do the sheep in area A maybe habituate to the sounds? Mm -hmm. But then we also have a third area and that is north of Hanksville. So mm -hmm. pretty far to the northwest directly of Moab. And that area receives the least amount of visitation. And that gives us another opportunity to ask, do sheep that are less exposed, more exposed, are they more sensitive or less sensitive? Because there's the possibility that sheep could habituate to these sounds. 
I know you've only had one real season uh, collecting data, but what, if anything, can you tell us what kind of insights into any of the trends that, that you're seeing with the data you found? The precaution to your question, what are we finding, is a two-word answer. It depends. Because it depends on group size, it depends on the habitat. What we've been finding so far is that if the sheep are surprised, they respond pretty strongly. Mm -hmm. In other words, if they're around a bend, and we know many of the uh, trails, whether they're hiking trails, whether they're um, mountain biking trails, whether they're motorcycle or other uh, ORV kind of trails, some run straight, but some have a lot of turns and switchbacks in them. If the sheep can't hear things coming, they get surprised real quickly and they're likely not only to bolt, but to go far. Yeah. So that's, that's an important one. We know that they're more vulnerable when they get surprised. Sometimes they hear the sounds coming and they have a chance to prepare and then they tend not to bolt. They just move off. Yeah. And so on the one hand, if people are saying, yeah, the sounds aren't that important, that's uh, an opinion, but, some of our data may bear that out, but at other times, and especially when the sheep haven't been exposed, they, they bolt out of there. And we've had pregnant sheep move up to three or four miles uh, at one time. That's rare. That's not the common, but that's kind of the extreme is what we've had on some responses. Have you noticed any kind of trend on what kind of noise seems to aggravate the sheep more? Or are there just too many variables to try to figure that out? So um, we're making good progress. We're making good progress. We know big trucks tend to scare them a lot. And that's just speed, though. So, you know, we're talking sound. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we're not playing back the sound to big trucks. But we do know that moving vehicles, when they're moving fast, have, a, have an impact. That's related to our work on noise, but it's not directly related because we want to focus more on noise because we're just doing motorcycles and then people voices. The motorcycle sounds are having a stronger, a much stronger impact than people when these other factors can be controlled for. And we do that statistically, but yeah. so we can say that the, the sound of motorcycles at close range is having a stronger impact. Once the sounds are more than uh, about 400 yards out, so that's about a quarter of a mile, they fall off pretty fast. And of course it depends, like are the sheep in an amphitheater? Are they in a canyon? Are they in the open? So as you were saying, Peggy, lots of variables, but when those variables are removed or isolated, the sound of motorcycles are carrying a stronger impact. We will be integrating what we're finding with sound in a related project. What we're doing also are uh, experiments, not just the sound experiments, which are, of course, the ones that I've just described to you. But at times we will have somebody on a mountain bike ride past bighorns. At times we'll have somebody do it on a motorcycle. At times they'll do it on a truck or in a spider. So we were able to do this and that way we're also getting the visual and the speed and the sounds and that will all be integrated and make for a more comprehensive project. So if, if your findings are that recreational uh, sounds are adding more stress to the bighorns, especially the females, what do you hope could be some of the plausible 
outcomes of this study? Okay, okay, great question. What might the outcomes, what might, what might I hope the outcomes would look like? <laughs> I'm gonna answer that only indirectly. Uh, <laughs> and, and the reason for that is I can have a hope, but it's really in the public domain. So what my hope would be, we would bring together different stakeholders hold two, three, four day workshops across different parts of Utah and get a much better feel for what the public is thinking. And, and when I say public, I don't just mean one form of public or the other, but everything from the business community, from stakeholders, from outfitters, from people who like to go out and photograph bighorns, you know, the entire realm. That would be my hope is that we can try to come to some sort of an agreement on where the best places are to put effort. I mean, certainly, you know, with some rafting and canoeing and kayaking or climbing, you know, we have some seasonal closures for peregrine falcons or for golden eagles, for bald eagles. And that has not been as unpopular as many people would think. But again, it's scale and it's how bad or how might the effects be. So a lot of discussion needed, but the first phase to me as a scientist is better to make decisions with information than without. As scientists, our currency is publications. Our currency is publications. And so at the end of the day, we have to publish this. It goes through a rigorous peer review process and it's out there for everybody to use. Now, the major managing agencies for bighorns are two. Utah Division of Natural Resources deal with the animals themselves, but then Park Service and Bureau of Land Management deal with the land. And so they're all involved in like a tripartite, uh, three groups together that have to try to decide, all right, if these are negative, how negative? What is our level of responsibility to the public? We have different agency missions. How do we adjudicate and make this work best for everybody? So why are bighorn sheep so popular? Your listening audience is in the realm of some of the best areas in the world for petroglyphs. Petroglyphs, rock inscriptions, carvings. Those have a biocultural component that goes back thousands of years. In other parts of the world, petroglyphs go back 10,000 years. In the southwestern deserts, we have more than 90,000 petroglyphs, of which bighorn sheep, for the animal ones, are more than 50%. Obviously, if we respect the people who have come before us, petroglyphs are one way to understand what was important to them. If we want to honor not only tradition, but symbols that are still important, we need to think about bighorns, but we should also be asking, should we have a national petroglyph? If we do, what would it be? Who would it be honoring? Clearly the people who come before us and it would lead to more conservation. So we did an op-ed um, that the Salt Lake Tribune carried and we had a possibility of putting it in the Washington Post, but we went to the Tribune because we wanted it in the heart of the West, yeah. petroglyph country. And it was titled uh, I don't remember the exact title. It was short. It was like 700 words, the entire op-ed. But it made the case for why don't we have a national petroglyph? So we're still trying to develop some traction on that, which is very different from this project. But ultimately, 
if we can succeed from a biocultural perspective, people are going to value it. You know, there are bighorn carvings, you know, the, the, the I mean, everywhere in the Southwest, whether it's Durango, Santa Fe, Moab or beyond Flagstaff, you know, you see lots of these like iconic petroglyphs and some statues and ultimately it will raise the bar. Well, Joel, as always, it's great to have you on the show and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you, maybe after next spring. The best broadcast system to me in the Western U.S. are you guys. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.